Welcome to the University of Sydney and the Sydney Ideas Lecture Series for tonight's distinguished speaker, uh, Bruce Schneier. Uh, if those of you, anyone here is looking for the Greenpeace event, that's over in the law school. Um, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is on their ancestral lands that this university is built, and we owe them our respect. My name is Frank Smith, and I'm the co-founder of the Sydney Cybersecurity Network, which is an incubator for interdisciplinary research, education, and outreach in this critical field. I think it's fair to say that cyberspace stands to be one of those, the most remarkable creations in human history. And my colleagues and I passionately believe that in order to understand and improve security in this domain, we must bring together both the computer and social sciences, as well as academia, industry, and government. We are therefore delighted to be hosting Bruce Schneier tonight. As all of you know, Bruce is a world-renowned expert in cybersecurity. He's been at the forefront of some of the most important debates in this field um, over the last two decades, ranging from the first crypto wars in the 1990s to uh, ongoing analysis and debate about the U.S. government programs revealed by Edward Snowden. He's also a best-selling author who, among other notable contributions, has helped make the otherwise esoteric world of cryptography really accessible um, for many of us in a general audience. So we're very fortunate to have him here this evening. After Bruce gives his presentation, we'll open the floor for your questions. Um, in order to uh, manage questions, we're going to ask that everyone come to the front and we'll have two microphones at the ready. Since surveillance and privacy uh, stand to be prominent themes uh, in today's discussion and certainly in Bruce's work, um, please note that we are recording this event for a podcast, um, and so your questions will be recorded as well. That said, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Bruce Schneier. Hey, thank you, and thanks for having me. Uh, I guess cyberspace is a transformative technology, but it fundamentally runs on electricity. And, and for that, does anybody have an iPhone charger I can borrow for the next hour? <laughs> You're all the way in the back. All right, it is coming this way. So actually, I, I'm probably not going to talk much about privacy, although a lot of cool equipment here. There's like... Wow. There are four things that say gas. So I guess I shouldn't turn them on unless I knew what I was doing. There's a be Even the water comes in beakers. All right. All right. Enough of this. This is what I want to talk about. So we're creating a world where everything is a computer. Right? You know, that smartphone is really a computer that makes phone calls. Your refrigerator is a computer that keeps things cold. An ATM machine is a computer with money inside. Your car used to be a mechanical device with a computer. Now it's a computer with four wheels and an engine. Actually, more specifically, it's a 20 to 40 computer network with four wheels and an engine. And this is happening everywhere in our lives. It's happening on our persons. Right, wearable devices, medical devices, that ubiquitous smartphone. It's happening in our homes, smart thermostats, smart appliances, smart light bulbs. It would talk, talk about smart cities. 
with sensors in, uh, in street lights, in sidewalks, in the streets. It's happening in governments. And this is changing the way we deal with cyberspace. Right? It's no longer a web that you connect to. It's a computerized and network world we live in. And this is really more than the Internet, and it's what we're calling the Internet of Things. Now, the Internet of Things really has three parts. It has the sensors that collect data about us and our environment. So, right, that smartphone collects location data. It knows I'm here. You all have one. It knows we are all in this room. The system knows that because the data is collected. The smart thermostats and light bulbs and internet-enabled street and highway sensors are all collecting data about us and our environment. <coughs> There's the smarts in the center that figure out what the data means and what to do about it. And this happens largely in the cloud. And it's processing, it's memory, it's history. It's all connected. And then lastly, they're the actuators that affect our environment. I mean, the whole purpose of that smart thermostat is to adjust the temperature in my house. Right? That phone knows I'm here and knows we are all here, so it could ring if we get a phone call. By the way, please put your phones on silent. Right? It, it's driverless cars right, are going to collect data about the environment in order to steer. Right? That's the point. So you can think of the sensors as the eyes and ears of the Internet. You could think of these actuators as the hands and feet of the Internet. And you could think of the stuff in the center as the brain. So we're building an Internet that senses, thinks, and acts which some of you might notice is the textbook definition of a robot. So we are, oddly enough, building a world-sized robot, and we don't even realize it. Now, this, this world-sized robot is actually more than the Internet of Things. It's the confluence of a bunch of different technologies. Mobile computing, cloud computing, persistent computing, big data, the Internet of Things, or really more generally cyber-physical systems, and autonomy, autonomous systems, AI. It's really those six disciplines coming together. It's smart things that act on the world in a direct and physical manner. An Internet that senses, thinks, and acts. Now, a lot of it's not very smart, and not going to be very smart anytime soon. Well, actually, a lot of it's pretty dumb. But it's getting more capable. It's getting more powerful. It's getting smarter. And as we connect more things to it, as we give it more data, as it gets better algorithms, you know, as it accretes. So, this computerization of the world means that Internet security will become security, everything security. And all the lessons from the world, from the decades of, of computer, computer network security, 
become applicable to everything. With one critical difference, the threats are greater. Traditionally, in the computer world, we're concerned about data. We're concerned about confidentiality, privacy, data theft, data misuse. But really, the threats come in many forms. I mean, certainly surveillance is a threat, but bias in design is a threat, data manipulation is a threat, data destruction is a threat, cheating, fraud, data denial, censorship, restrictions on use. And in this greater world, the integrity and availability threats matter much more than the confidentiality threats. The effects are greater. In this real world, there are actual risks to life and property. There's a a fundamental difference between your spreadsheet crashes and you lose your data and your car crashes and you, you lose your life. That is not just a difference in degree, that is a difference in kind. And that is going to become increasingly normal. And even the parts of the Internet that don't directly affect the world now have lasting effects. Algorithms are having huge effects on our lives. A lot of writing in the United States about predictive policing. Algorithms that determine where police are deployed that reinforce racial biases. Your application to college was processed largely by an algorithm. Whether you get a loan or not, what, what kind of services you get when you go to the hospital, algorithms play a huge part in this. In the United States, we now have algorithms that determine who gets released from jail. Algorithms make parole decisions. So take, a, take an easy example, right? modern cars. That small network with four wheels and an engine. So we don't want the navigation system to be able to be used for, uh, for mass surveillance. Right? That's pretty obvious. Or the microphone to be used for mass eavesdropping. But there's other threats. right? We don't want people to be able to bypass uh, emissions control limitations. We actually also don't want companies like Volkswagen to be able to do that. We might want the police to be able to safely and remotely disable a car. That seems like a good idea. But we don't want hackers to be able to do it. We definitely don't want to be able to do it without warning and not safely and not to every car. And as we move from, from these computerized driver cars to driverless cars, We don't want any of those components to be hackable. And you can go on with the different types of threats. So so security is an arms race. This isn't anything new. I've been saying this for years. Uh, But it's an interesting arms race because it's an arms race that's driven by technology. Technological innovation perturbs the balance between attacker and defender. A lot of examples of this. Uh, Spam is probably a really easy one. Spam is a constant arms race between an an innovation in spam and the anti-spam programs detecting it. And you'll notice this in your email. You'll get more or less spam. 
And when that happens is when a new technique has appeared on one side or the other. Similar uh, arms race with click fraud. And companies like Google who are trying to battle click fraud. Or ad blockers. You, um, I assume a lot of you use ad blockers. You notice now we have ad blocker blockers. <laughs> There's a little arms race there between the ad blockers and the ad blocker blockers. You say uh, an, a modern ATM machine is the culmination of a decades-long arm race between attackers and defenders. Uh, DRM systems are the same way. So there are five trends that affect this arms race that are going to be applicable in the world of the Internet of Things. Right? They're going to affect the arms race everywhere. And they're, they're, they're trends from our computer world. Right? The first, attack is easier than defense. If you study computer security, you know this. A whole bunch of reasons. Big one is complexity. Right? Complexity is the worst enemy of security. I saw an ad recently, I think it was a Mercedes ad, where they boasted their car has 10 million lines of code. Right now, there's about a, a bug in every thousand lines of code in, in commercial software. So that's a lot of vulnerabilities in that car. And the attacker just has to find one unsecured avenue of attack. He chooses the time, place, method of attack. The defender has to defend the entire attack surface. Attackers have a natural agility. Attackers have a first mover advantage. And this has been especially true with computers and the Internet. And it's even more so as things get even more complex and more interconnected. Because that's my second trend. There are new vulnerabilities in the interconnections. The more we connect things to each other, the more vulnerabilities in one thing affect vulnerabilities in the other thing. I don't know if you uh, remember the news from uh, a month, I guess it's last month now, earlier this month. Brian Krebs, a journalist, uh, covers uh, cybercrime, was the victim of a massive denial of service attack. And that attack was perpetrated by Internet of Things, by basically digital video recorders and CCTV cameras. It's a great story of Matt Honig, uh, another uh, tech writer, who where a vul- it was a vulnerability in his Amazon account allowed hackers to get into his Apple account using another vulnerability, let him hop to his Google account, and eventually, I think, delete his Twitter account. I mean, it's like it was this chain of vulnerabilities. And in a lot of these instances, it's n- no one's actually at fault. It's not individual vulnerabilities. It's, it's things being tied together that where a vulnerability emerges. Target Card Corporation, big U.S. retailer, a massive hack a couple of years ago through a vulnerability in their HVAC supplier. Not something they could have thought of. So you might have two individually secure systems interacting to generate an insecurity. Trend three. More critical systems means more empowered attackers. So attack scale. What the Internet is good at is scaling things. Cyber criminals can steal more money from more bank accounts 
faster than criminals who are doing it on foot and in cars. Right? Digital pirates can copy more music and more movies faster than when you had to actually use tape. Right? So fewer attackers can do more damage because of better technology. Right? And the internet just fosters this. Attacks become much more critical because computers are involved. And this, this trend becomes more dangerous as systems become more critical. Right? This robot we're building affects the real world. So we're talking about things that were never possible before. Crashing all the cars, shutting down all the power plants. And we're not concerned about the security against the average attacker. When you think of sort of my home and my home security, I'm sort of concerned about only the criminals whom driving to my house is worth the bother. But I live in Minneapolis. I mean, I don't care about the criminals in Mumbai. They're not coming to rob my house. But the Internet has no conception of place. So it's not the average attacker I care about. It's the most extreme attacker. It's the Five Sigma guy that can ruin it for everybody. In a sense, this is the too big to fail problem. Or really the too critical to fail problem. I guess the too powerful to let succeed problem. So trend four. The economics of computer security don't trickle down to the Internet of Things. And so I'll give you one example, our inability to patch these devices. So our computers and phones are as secure as they are for a bunch of reasons. One, there are teams of dedicated security engineers at Microsoft, at Apple, at Google, that are doing their best to design them secure in the first place. Right? Two, those teams are able to quickly and effectively patch. If that phone gets patches pretty much automatically. My Windows machine, right, second Tuesday every month, gets a bunch of patches. That isn't true for the low-cost embedded systems like those DVRs that attack Brian Krebs. Right, there's a much lower margin. They're often built offshore by third parties. They just aren't security teams associated with those devices. I mean, right now, there's a vulnerability in a whole bunch of digital video recorders out in the world that allow them to be used for dial service attacks. The way we patch those systems is to throw them away and buy a new one. And that's just not going to happen. Right, we also get security from the fact that I replace my iPhone like, about every two years, my computer every three years. Can replace my DVR every 10 years, my thermostat, what, approximately never? Right? That natural churn of devices that we're used to is not going to happen as the computers get into these more embedded things. Right? And the market can't fix this because the market doesn't care. And if you owned one of those digital video recorders that attacked Brian Krebs, you actually couldn't care less. Right? It's not you that's affected. It's still working fine. 
the seller wants to sell you something at low cost. You want to buy something at low cost. You both just want it to work. That it has this vulnerability that affects the greater ecosystem is a fundamental externality. It's a market failure. So last trend, and this is uh, different, different truth in different countries, that so there's a perverse result of copyright law that makes it impossible to conduct security research on a lot of these things. And this is digital rights management. In the United States is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. In other countries, there's different names. This is the law that makes it illegal to conduct valid security research on these devices if that research involves breaking copy protection. This is a huge problem because it means the research to secure these systems just isn't being done. Right? This research is being threatened, they're being sued, research doesn't get published, doesn't get distributed, and eventually doesn't get funded. All right, so those are the things we know about the Internet. And this is the things we know about the security on the Internet. There will soon be security everywhere. So how do we secure this world? Well, you know, all the aspects of the security, of, of the computerization that go into this world have their own research and security. Right? Mobile security, cloud security, IoT security, security of persistent devices, security of autonomous systems. And there's probably a seminar, and there's probably a, actually a, a class in each of them. But in general, there are two basic paradigms of security. There's paradigm A, which is secure it well and properly the first time. This comes from the world of dangerous things that can kill you. Right? Planes, automobiles, medical devices, buildings. This is the world of security by design. It's the world of, of security engineering of testing, of certification, of licensing. This is the world that gives us you know, drug testing and building codes. And all that stuff. Then there's paradigm B, which is make sure your security is agile. And this comes from the world, from the, the, the fast-moving and heretofore largely benign world of software. And this is not the get it right the first time paradigm. This is the fix it fast paradigm. Rapid prototyping, rapid updates, survivability, uh, uh, mitigation, adaptability, agility, basically muddling through. So these two worlds are colliding. They're colliding in our cars, in our medical devices, in our building control systems our traffic control systems, our voting machines. And so far, we've done a really bad job in integrating these two systems. Right? You know, Windows XP, a 13-year-old operating system that's no longer supported by Microsoft, is in 95% of all ATM machines. In, in the United States, there are medical systems that can't receive security updates because if they did, it would invalidate all the testing they went through to be certified as medical devices. So they must remain insecure because that's the way 
paradigm A works. In 2015, Chrysler recalled 1.4 million cars because there was a software vulnerability. In order to patch them, they had to recall them to the dealership. Contrast this with Tesla, which last month, serious vulnerability, I think their Model S, downloaded a patch overnight. While you were all asleep. Actually, you were awake, we were asleep. So, right, we need more resilient security. And that's a bunch of things, right? It's defense in depth, compartmentalization, redundancy. And this is really hard technically. And there are a lot of people working on Internet of Things security. Can we have secure building blocks? Uh, how do we build an Internet that assumes lousy systems, malicious systems? How do we limit the catastrophic effects of vulnerabilities? Right, but primarily, I think this is a policy problem. It's a huge tech problem, I think it's a bigger policy problem. There are problems of law, economics, psychology, sociology. <coughs> and getting those right is actually critical to security. And getting the policy right is, is hugely difficult. And I'm sure the whole Apple computer versus the FBI story got here. And the whole vulnerability equities process of when government should disclose vulnerabilities, when they should use them for offensive purposes. Because what we know is that law and technology have to work together. I actually think this is the primary lesson of Edward Snowden. You know, we already knew that technology can subvert law. What Snowden taught us is that law can also subvert technology. And that both have to work or neither works. But I have a practical problem here. Is that in most countries, certainly mine, I think yours too, that there isn't a regulatory structure that can tackle this at any systemic level. There is a fundamental mismatch between the way government works and the way technology works. Because government works in silos. Right? Different agencies regulate aircraft and cars and medical devices and consumer devices. Right? For data, the jurisdiction can change depending on how the data is used. In the United States, the same piece of data, same database, is used to influence a consumer a voter, a student, it's different regulatory agencies. And a lot of things fall between the cracks. In the United States right now, there is no organization that can legally regulate a surveillance drone that locks onto the MAC address of your phone and follows you around taking pictures. That just falls within all the cracks. I'm not sure there's anybody that really can regulate robotics at any reasonable level. And when you have this patchwork, each agency has different approach and different rules. There's not a lot of expertise being amalgamated because it's all being distri distributed. 
And that's not the Internet. The Internet is a freewheeling system of integrated objects and networks, grows horizontally, destroying barriers, allows systems of people to communicate that never communicated before. All that rhetoric is true. And it really is an app on that phone that logs my health information, controls my energy use, and interacts with my car. I've, I've crossed, in the United States, four regulatory boundaries just there. And what? I mean, I just woke up in the morning. So any solution has to be holistic. Whether it's a car, or a drone, or a phone, it's a computer. It's a computer with different sensors and different actuators. But it's a computer. So my proposal, which pretty much no one wants to hear, is a new government regulatory agency. That we actually need something that can deal with this. Not a new idea. Uh, Ryan Kahlo, a law professor at University of Washington, uh, has proposed the Federal Robotics Commission. I think it needs to be more general, like a Department of Technology policy. You know, maybe that's too broad, you can limit it to computer technology, but pretty much all technology is computer technology these days. And this has a lot of precedent. Many new technologies have led to the formulation of new government agencies. The United States, trains did, cars did, airplanes did, radio did, nuclear power did. We have regulatory agencies in the United States that came from each of those technologies. I'll bet the same thing happened here. Because new technologies need new expertise and new expertise needs a place to go. And we have problems that markets can't solve. Because markets are short-term and profit-motivated. That's what they do best. They can't solve collection action, collective action problems. And we need a balancing force against corporate power. And government is the entity that does this sort of thing. You know, and I can come up with a basic list of the kind of regulations we need. We need, we need to enforce good security practices, testing, patching, security faults. Right? We need some regulation on data protection. We need support for responsible security research. We need some interoperability requirements, some rules for data portability. A law professor at Harvard, Jonathan Zittrain, talks about Faraday mode. There should be some way for these devices to operate, at least minimally, without the Internet. And of course there are problems here. I mean, there's a lack of expertise, lack of willingness to do the work, regulatory capture is a thing. In the United States, at least, there's a general inability of Congress to do actually anything at all. And really, this is just a start. I mean, you might notice that I just proposed creating a domestic regulatory agency for a fundamentally international problem. And like everything else, the devil's in the details. But the alternative is to do this ad hoc and piecemeal. But this is the thing. 
Governments are going to get involved regardless. The risk is too great and the stakes are too high. Government is already involved in our dangerous physical systems. And when something happens, governments will be spurred into action. They're going to do something. Not to mention the actual robots. So the choice isn't Government involvement or no government involvement. The choice is smarter government involvement or stupider government involvement. And we have to start thinking about this. Otherwise, we're going to be surprised. We're going to get stupider government involvement. And technically, I think we need to start disconnecting systems. And basically, if we cannot secure complex network systems, then we must not build a world where everything is computerized and everything is interconnected. I mean, there are other models. Local communication, limits on communication, systems that that, that don't connect with other systems. We need more distributed systems, more self-empowerment, less centralized control. In large centralized systems are not inevitable. The technical elites are pushing us in that direction. They actually don't have any really good arguments, except we like it that way. And I think we're going to soon reach the high watermark of computerization and the connectivity. Not that they go away, but we'll get to a point where we start making conscious decisions about what we computerize and what we connect. I think there's an analogy with nuclear power here. You know, in the, like the 1970s, there was a high watermark of nuclear power. Before that, everything was going to be nuclear. After that, we recognized the dangers, recognized the risks, wanted the benefits, and nuclear power became an element in a more complex power ecosystem. Now, my guess is the same thing will happen with, uh, with connectivity. I mean, not today. You know, we're still in the honeymoon phase of big data, of connectivity. I like to say that uh, companies and, and uh, governments are still punch drunk on our data. And, and if you remember the, uh, the, phrase, the NSA phrase from the Snowden documents, uh, collect it all, we're kind of like in connect it all. But I think that'll change. I mean, we really actually do want to change the fabric of the Internet so that evil governments don't have all the tools to create a horrific totalitarian state. That'd be best. And while good laws and regulations in Western democracies are a great second line of defense, they can't be our only line of defense. But most importantly, and if there's one sort of message I can leave with everybody here, is that technologists need to get involved in policy. The Internet of Things, this world-sized robot, offers enormous promise, but there are enormous risks. The erosion of personal privacy, surveillance at a scale and scope we have never seen before, increased social inequity, threats to safety and security, risks monopolies and centralization. And as Internet security becomes everything security, Internet security technology 
becomes more important to overall security policy. And all of the security policy issues we will face will have strong technological components. And honestly, we're never going to get the policy right if policymakers get the tech wrong. I mean, that's the fundamental problem that Apple versus the FBI surfaced. That's the equities debate. That's what to do about voting machines. That's driverless car security. And you have technologists and policymakers talking past each other. DMCA was that. And we need to fix this. We really need to fix this. Technologists need to get involved in policy discussions. Right? We need technologists in the staff of our elected officials. We need them in federal agencies, in NGOs, in the press. I mean, this is actually bigger than security. We need, as a society, to build a world where there's a viable career path for public interest technologists. And if we don't, bad things will happen to us. Because policy will be done to us instead of with us. All right, so here are my main points. The Internet of Things is going to change everything. Right? Computers that affect the world in a direct and physical manner. More real-world consequences, more autonomy, more catastrophic risks, and fewer off-switches. This is kind of all less designed than created. It is coming without any forethought or architecting or planning. Because that's the way it kind of works. When we try to design this stuff, we are regularly surprised by emergent properties. The best thing we do is observe and, and channel what happens as it's happening. Three, the threats are getting worse in several dimensions. And historically, we are very bad at defending against these kind of threats. Also historically, we are very good at panicking about outlandish scenarios that we imagine from these sorts of threats. And often the panic is much more dangerous to our freedom, to our liberty, to our society than the threats themselves. Four, this is all coming. The technology is coming. Like it or not, government involvement is coming. And it's coming faster than we all think. Five, we need to get ahead of it. I think we need to start making choices. We need, we need security systems as robust as the threat landscape. We need laws that are technologically invariant. Right? We need laws that address the economics and psychology of the security situation. And we need to make moral, ethical, and political decisions about how these systems should work. You know, until now, programmers have kind of had a special right in our society to code the world as they saw fit. We gave them that right because it didn't actually matter that much. I think that has to end. Not sure how, but it does. And lastly, most importantly, we need to bring together policymakers and technologists. This is a hard thing to do, but it's the only way we're going to solve these problems. We all need to get involved in this debate. Thank you.
so I am happy to take questions. There's a microphone there, and, and some it'll be... So I, I think the rule is okay. you sort of come and right. stand in a line. Uh, my name is Gerard Hosier. Um, oh, okay, he's in charge. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, my name is Gerard Hosier. I have a question about uh, data, uh, for example, medical data and islands of data. Um, quite often universities uh, and their ethics departments are in charge of very personal mm -hmm. data. And they say their data is anonymized because uh, no one can decode it. But with deep data analysis and other islands of information, like, for example, cell tower information, other Facebook information, when you amalgamate them in a big data or deep data analysis engine, can all be reverse engineered. And quite often you go to university um, discussions and people say, oh good, we have this data, now we can identify... We need to get to the question part. Yeah, we can identify um, criminals with, with uh, data. So I just want to know, when uh, asking a question about this marriage of all these islands, right. how much of a risk is it? So there's sort of a lot in that. Uh, I mean, yes, he's right that data anonymization is much harder than most people think. That, re, that unanonymizing data ends up being easier than most people think. Now, there are two things we can do about this. Right? We can not make the data available, which probably will work in some circumstances, or we can make the data available under strict rules, which works well in other circumstances. Right? In, in law enforcement... Right? We, we make the data available under strict rules. For medical research, that's probably a good answer as well. That you, a researcher, are allowed this data. It's going to be personal. It's going to have, it might have names. But here are the strict controls under which you get this data. In, in other ways, uh, you can actually use modern anonymization techniques to get just views of the data or less data. There's never going to be one answer here. And I mean, there's something where we actually want the benefits of this big data analysis, but we want to protect our privacy. And what we do will depend on, on, on the case. So, I don't know, what's a good example? Uh, Waze. Waze is a great... My Waze is a traffic program. I mean, it's a program that gets me from here to there, and it works because everybody uses Waze under surveillance. I get real-time traffic data because you all are under surveillance who are using it. Now, that data is personal, but it's only valuable for what? Five minutes? And then you can throw it away. Right? So, different data will have different controls. I mean, yes, this is hard, but I don't think it's harder than any other sort of hard social problem we have to solve. We have to, we have to weigh different costs and benefits. And I worry a lot less about universities than the for-profit databases that have my data and are using it against my interests. Right? Then that, that's a bigger risk. I mean, you know, if that's my problem, universities are in the noise. Hi, Bruce. John Selby, Macquarie University Optus Cybersecurity Hub. You've talked about a desire to see, with the Internet of Things, greater compartmentalization uh, to reduce risk. I'm interested in the, your thoughts on the challenges posed by the next generation of trade agreements which are currently being negotiated, such as the Trade and Services Agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Transatlantic Trade and Investment uh, Partnership, where they are seeking to lock in 
ground rules which would prohibit a lot of that compartmentalisation by yeah. prohibiting data localization, by requiring transfer of information across borders, etc. I think this is fundamentally an example of technologists not involved in the policy. I mean, the policy is being written by policymakers for other policymakers and for companies that want to make profits off policy. And, and, and here is again is where technologists need to get involved in the debate. It might be too late for those and we're kind of screwed, but there's going to be a lot of those examples where the technological effects are not obvious to the non-technologists. Now, we can look at that and say, God, this is a dumb idea. Right? But how do you communicate that? So I mean, we're trying. But, but, but this happens again and again. Right? This happened with voting machines in the United States after the 2000 election. I mean, there was this push to modernize machines. But they were modernized to very insecure touchscreen machines, which are now causing panic 16 years later. Hi, Bruce. My name is Race. Um, I read something a long time ago that said the fundamental problem with most threats on the internet is that you don't know who's at the other end. Do you think that through technology and possibly federating logins and knowing who's at the other end, we can solve some of these problems? So it's a complicated question. You're asking really about attribution. And, and in many cases, that's not a problem at all. I mean, you think about it, if you're a company and you're being attacked, the name of the person who's attacking you is probably the last thing you care about. It doesn't actually matter. I mean, it only matters if someone's going to arrest him. You want to stop the attacker, kick him out, make sure he doesn't do anything bad, but what his name is, is irrelevant to you. In a lot of cases, attribution doesn't matter at all. Now, in a lot of cases, it does. For any kind of law enforcement purpose, attribution is critical. If you can't attribute the attack, you don't know who to arrest. And whether, how hard or easy it is depends on a lot of different variables. Right? So, I mean, you, you watch. Watch the United States, and you'll see you know, we're attacked all the time, and sometimes we will say, right, Russia attacked the DNC. Right? North Korea attacked Sony. China attacked... U.S. Steel. In some cases, we won't. We never officially attributed the attack against the Office of Personnel Management. Do we know? Do we not know? It's probably all the same. It's probably it's very political. In a law enforcement in a law enforcement context, attribution can be very difficult. I mean, you can backtrack attacks in some cases, but you can never be sure that the computer is the end computer. And it's hard to make that leap from keyboard to chair. Who's sitting in front of the computer? Right? I know that computer did the attack, but I don't know who did it. I don't know if that computer is controlled by a computer over there. Now, if you are the NSA and you are surveilling large swaths of the Internet, or I guess Australia, which is part of Five Eyes and gets the same data, you can do a lot more. But a lot of the attribution information is itself secret and can't be used in public. Because there's three kinds of attribution. Right? I know you did it. I know you did it. I can prove to you that I know you did it. And I know you did it. I can prove to a third party I know you did it. And if I know you attacked me, 
but the, but the way I know is so secret that I'll never tell anybody, then it's useless because I can't prove it in court. So I'll never make it public. Now, the other thing to think about is that the lines between state and non-state actors blurs here. Remember when uh, North Korea attacked Sony? Remember that no one believed North Korea attacked Sony in the early months? There was a legitimate debate in my community about whether this attack against Sony was perpetrated by a nation state with a $20 billion military budget or a couple of guys in a basement somewhere. That's freaky. We're not supposed to be able to confuse the two. <laughs> but on the internet, you can. You know, what will happen in the future? A lot of the same. In some cases, it'll be easy. In some cases, it'll be hard. In some cases, we can make it public. In some cases, we can't. It'll be a mess. I don't know if that answer helped. <laughs> Hi. Um, I remember about 15 to 20 years ago on your blog, there were a number oh of... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm ready. <laughs> There were a number of discussions about whether or not we should be looking at strict liability for either manufacturing or operating uh, devices or software that was with vulnerabilities that were later exploited. Um, based on what you're talking about tonight, and especially with the economic failure that you discussed, is it possibly time we revisited that question? I've always been in favor of software liabilities because it's... because. It's the way we use economics to solve the problem. Right? The problem is that there's a vulnerability in the system and the manufacturer basically doesn't care. That it's an externality to them and it doesn't matter. But if there's liability, that, that raises the cost of that vulnerability. Right? It makes securing it a more attractive financial option because having it is expensive. Now, this is going to be hard Liabilities is not as easy as we'd like it to be, and if you take a, a you know a, a torts class, you know how crazy it is. But you know we're pretty good at figuring this out. But I think that liabilities will go a long way to improving the security of our entire ecosystem. Um, assuming that the law. Um is designed to protect the individual, taking that definition of the law. And in terms of your advice that the technologists should get involved in, in, in advising the law, what would you, this is a bit of a meta question, but what would you think, how would you advise lawyers to go about, um, you know, a kind of, you know, if the individual is the starting point, is it about, you know, preventing the collection of the data? Is it the management afterwards? Basically, this is not a question about law enforcement, but yeah. about the design of the law itself. Yeah, so, so I, think, I think it's every aspect. I, mean, I think that's what we learn about laws. It's never one thing. It's always a, a broad series of things to achieve a result. So, uh, in my, this book was like, the book was way around. In this book, I talk about data collection and regulation. And it's, it's, yeah, I took it's every step. It's collection, it's use, it's transfer, it's correction, it's disposal. And, and we, we sort of need regulation at every step. Because you can't just pick one point because there's too many ways around things. So the hard question you're asking is how do we figure out 
what works. And, and the answer is, the way the law does it, is, is we kind of trial and error, right? We, we, we figure out things, and then we, we correct things and adjust things, and it's a, it's a slow, iterative process, but the result is something that largely works, right? I mean, you know, laws against assault or bribery or murder, they, they largely work, and they've been a whole bunch of time making them work. So the problem here, which I guess you don't have an answer to, is, is we're kind of moving into a world where technology is moving faster than law. And that's relatively new. So go back 100 years, and a new technology would be adopted so slowly that the law could figure it out. You know, now, new technologies are adopted so quickly they just outstrip the ability of law to, to know what's going on and, and, and to work. Because law is almost never anticipatory. It's almost always reactive. And I don't know, I mean, anticipatory law is, is much harder. And we, we tend to like to live in a, you know, not in a permissions-based society, but in a rights-based society. A permissions-based society is is everything is forbidden unless approved, and a rights-based society is everything is, is approved unless forbidden. We tend to like the latter. And that's going to be harder. But I don't think the former is good. So I, I, I bring this as an open research question to the political scientists in the room. Yes? So elections have always existed in the paradigm A, sort of world, more and more there, there's a push to, for them to be automated and yeah. become electronic. What are some of the concerns that you see being the key points that stop us moving forward uh, with elections? So, so the way I'm often, and I do a lot of talk about election security, is uh, and electronic machines, internet elections, and, 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 all, and computerized voting, is you know, how come I can bank over the internet, but I can't vote over the internet? And, and there's an, actually an easy answer, and it is anonymity. The reason you can feel safe banking over the internet, using an ATM machine, is that those transactions are all recorded, that your name is associated with them. And if there is a problem, we can generally figure out what happened and unravel it. Voting has a unique requirement, I'm going to bring you everything we do, is that we need a break between the system that figures out that you are allowed to vote and your actual vote. And that anonymity requirement makes it much harder to secure. If voting didn't have to be anonymous, it would be easy to secure. Everyone votes, the votes are all published, you can check that your vote is accurate, and you can count it up just like everybody else. Done. But anonymity makes that solution impossible. So the reason that internet voting is a terrible idea, the reason that touchscreen voting machines are a terrible idea, is because we can't secure them in a way that preserves anonymity. Do you think that the solution to that is a cryptographic solution? Nope. Or it is not a, a math problem. <laughs> right? It is not a problem that more math can solve. It's a fundamental problem of computer security. How do you think we're going to overcome that? Is there... 
uh, 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 decades will pass and we will get better science. But it's decades. It's not next Tuesday. Or the second Tuesday in November, whenever it is. I don't know. There's early voting in my state. I voted already. We're running low on Thank time, you. so we have uh, one more question for this evening. All right, you are the last question. Hey, lucky me. You will be judged by your peers on the quality of your question. <laughs> Hooray. Hey. Okay, this is perhaps a, a meta-fundamental question. I like meta-questions. Okay. The, what we've talked about a lot tonight is security. We've used the language of warfare, mm -hmm. attack, defense, vulnerabilities, so forth. The history of warfare has said that when a new technology comes in, old technology becomes obsolete, whether it was planes at Midway or whether it was the nuclear bomb, whatever you want to call it. When is the time going to be to scrap the DARPA project and say, it's broken, let's start again? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, right? Uh, I mean, this is the arms race, and, and yeah, I mean, we could do a lot better if we started from scratch. We could do a lot better. We know a lot more about how a theoretical internet should work. And, and I, my guess is it's never going to happen. I mean, there's just too many embedded systems, there's too much interest. It's like scrapping the tax code and starting from scratch. You just don't do it. Uh, you know, even though it's a technologically good idea, I think it's it's so uh, socially completely unacceptable. I mean, but you can imagine how it might start. We might develop a, a you know a separate high security internet and use it for critical things and have it migrate down, and then the real internet sort of fades away. Maybe, but you know, it, the, the way it all works is so central. I mean, I can't even get IPv6 implemented. And that's a minor change in the current internet. You want to do a whole new internet? It's just too much, you know, there's, there's too much weight. Yeah, it's not the time, it's the number of devices. It's the legacy systems. It's the companies. It's the money. It's all of those things. Right? It's, yeah, sorry. I mean, I, I'm not optimistic. I'd, I'd love to be wrong. And I kind of want you to be right. I'm just not betting on it. <laughs> on that I, high so note. I think that's it. Uh, so, I, so this is my latest book. I, I actually didn't bring a copy for everybody. I kind of wanted to, but the publisher wouldn't let me. But I, there are flyers. I guess this is the thin version. Uh, there are flyers for it out there. Uh, I'm going to stick around for a bit. And uh, thank you all. Thanks for, uh, thanks for sitting here.